Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast where our talk ranges through all the various media of entertainment, from films to comics to games to music to dancing bears and dancing monkeys with little hats and digitally created little dancing Pikachus, the full range of dancing animals and animal-like creatures. Today we're going to be talking about the HBO miniseries Chernobyl. It's totally fine if you haven't watched it, so just stick around. My name is Mark Linton-Meyer, and I am not responsible for any nuclear disasters, except insofar as I exist passively in a culture of lies. I'm Erica Spires, and I, maybe like you, believe in the most sympathetic narrator. And I'm Brian Hurt, and I think the Chernobyl miniseries was pretty much just a ripoff of that Pepsi Syndrome bit they did on Saturday Night Live. (laughs) Everybody's going to YouTube to check that out. So whose brilliant idea was this? We wanted to do a specific property. We've talked in generalities, we've referred to a lot of stuff in passing, and I wanted us to actually all watch or read the same thing and this was short, and it was current, so here we go. I meant nuclear power, Mark, but okay, ah. we'll, we'll, we'll talk about Chernobyl. Are we saying that right, Chernobyl? Chernobyl. I, I was just doing an exaggerated, fake, poor Russian accent. Ah, playing into one of these Russian stereotypes we're going to get into, right? What a country in Chernobyl, it blows up. That's not one of his jokes. Speaking of those Russian stereotypes, I know this is all on audio. As we're doing this, Erica's drinking out of an opaque mug, a coffee mug, likely that's just full of vodka? Yeah, all right, we're day drinking. Why not? Still on vacation for one more day, technically. All right, so this thing, there are a couple different aspects of it that we were talking about potentially covering. When we were looking around at the articles about it, there actually wasn't that much actually evaluating it as a piece of entertainment. It was all How close is this to what actually happened there? There was just story after story after story about that. But the ways in which it deviates from what is true are because it is a particular kind of narrative. It's a particular kind of story. It's a particular kind of entertainment. And so we were talking about the idea of why people watch these things with so much suffering in them, this so-called misery porn or whatever that we've seen in uh, Hands Made Tale, Game of Thrones, other Black Mirror, other popular stuff. Why do we find it interesting to watch these things that make us miserable? So where do we want to start? How about the very first article we are going to look at, just to give us a frame of reference, that Chernobyl is based on a true story. The differences are in things that are really based on a true story and things that are just really veering off into another territory. And maybe we can make a decision as to what this one constitutes as. So this is from tvtropes.org, basically giving us a rundown of the stock phrase based on true story. Within that, we can have a documentary form, which is not really based on a true story. It's, it is supposed to be a true story, although through, of course, a biased lens. Then we have, I'm not sure how to say this, Roman Aklef, that's what I would guess, which is pretty much supposed to be true, but they've changed the names maybe to protect those people involved. Then we have the dramatization, which is where we change things a bit for dramatic effect. 
And then we have very loosely based on a true story. So the idea itself came from a true story, but there's not much more there than that. I'm thinking that might be like an angels and demons type of idea. And then we have based on a great big lie. And I think the most popular example of that is the Fargo series and movie, which purports to be a true story at the beginning. And then if you look that up, you find that none of those stories are true. And the producers just decided to do that to make it more exciting for its viewers. And somehow they keep doing that for whatever it's worth. I don't know if you watch the Fargo TV series, but they still put that ridiculous line about it being a true story at the beginning. Probably there's something in the closing credits or something because they have to cover themselves legally, one would think. You would think, but the way I think I found it out, I mean, I did a quick Google search because, of course, some of those stories just seem absolutely, or if not all the stories seem absolutely ridiculous. And I, like many things, if I want to know they're true, I go on to Snopes. Thank goodness for Snopes, am I right? It's a very quick way to like shut somebody down on the internet. It's no longer admitted as being objective anymore, at least in the political realm. Politics happened. (laughs) Oh, oh, I, I understand. I still go there, but I still believe a lot of things other people don't believe that I read, oh, in the newspaper, but not to digress. So where does this fall on the spectrum? It's not quite a spectrum. It doesn't go from maybe one end to the other end precisely, but the Chernobyl miniseries does fall pretty well, I think, into this idea of trying to be largely based on the truth and going for fidelity. I think so too. Before reading these articles and when I just saw the miniseries, of course, I know that some things are going to be changed for dramatic effect. But after reading some of this, it made me wonder, some of the critics have said that a lot of it, outside of it looking like the right time period and the artistry of the locations and the cinematography and the costuming, a lot of it is fantasy. But I would still say it's probably a dramatization. I would too. And you know, I think that really is a larger version of what's happening at a very small level from scene to scene. Dramatization is important because reality is kind of boring or doesn't make for good television all the time. This comes up in the idea of screenwriting, or I suppose it's the same for a play. Real life dialogue kind of sucks. And listening to people talk about things usually is not dramatic. And people don't talk the way they do in scenes the way they do in real life. Not to say that documentaries aren't gripping, but they're edited also to make them interesting. So if they really wanted to make this faithful, I don't think we would get a highly dramatic show. I could be wrong. Or the example that was pointed out to the point where the producers even mention it in the closing credits, this idea that one of the characters is an amalgam of a whole bunch of people. And it's done in part so we can follow the story and we have someone that we can relate to or root for. If they had had a whole passel of Soviet scientists, we wouldn't know one from the next. We wouldn't be able to tell them apart one saying something versus the other saying something. We'd try to impart meaning into it and try to parse it in a way that we're just not following the story anymore. It's like an American trying to read Chekhov and trying to remember which character is which because to us, all of those names sound eerily similar. I think we have that problem with this even as is. But yes, making as few named speaking characters as possible is a good way to make you care about them individually. And this is where we reach a decision point in the podcast, because that character we could either call the Emily Watson character, which is just shameful, or we could try to muddle through 
Ulana Komyuk, and in my doing that, I've just totally outed myself as unable to say her name properly, or however it was said during the show. So my apologies. At least I feel good that this person didn't exist, so I'm butchering the name of a non-existent human being. Maybe we do call her the Emily Watson character? Is that all right? That's sticking it to the producers. I would use a functional description, because nobody remembers necessarily either name, unless you're familiar with the oeuvre of Emily Watson. So it's the amalgam supporting scientist character. From now on, it's just Emily Watson. (laughs) So next, Emily Watson comes in and she says... (laughs) What about the science? I noted that there were all these articles about the realism, but I was under the impression that the science, like it would be too much trouble to make that up. The things that they actually were doing to prevent a further catastrophe, that those were all pretty much accurate. As far as the science of what happened and how these power plants work... I didn't read anything in particular that contradicted that, but there was an article from Forbes. Dr. Robert Gale talks about some of the things that are incorrect or that he sees that are inaccurate, including the portrayal of how terrible and zombified the people seem to be after they've been exposed to radiation and how severe it is to be close to someone with radiation. And those were some of the most harrowing moments for me. So as I was watching it, I was looking up to see like how dangerous it actually is to be around somebody with that. And it was really surprising to me while watching it that the woman Ludmila and her baby seemed to be fine after it was born. And this doctor says, actually, that's not uncommon at all. Yeah, we're not really in a great position to say whether receiving mild doses of radiation is in fact healthy, as this doctor claims. But certainly the the film just hits you over the head with how foolish these people are to be just out at nighttime watching the disaster taking place in the open air and not running for cover and putting foil over their heads or whatever that they should properly be doing. I don't think it portrays them as foolish. That's a little judgy. It's really portrays them as ignorant. Yes. Through no fault of their own. You know, most people who have seen this movie aren't nuclear scientists, but a lot of people have done radiation training. If you work around x-rays or do anything like that, you've had to do it. I've had to do it for when I was in school, working around some lab equipment. And it's pretty scary, the stuff that they show you. In order to do that, you watch the video of the people who didn't realize they were standing in radiation and then the disfigurements that come afterwards and the radiation burns, it is intentionally terrifying. You are supposed to come at it with an abundance of caution. And so to see the way that they filmed it in this miniseries really coming across very much like a horror story, and I know that's something that's been said about Chernobyl already, this idea that you have this invisible thing, almost like the angel of death in that old Ten Commandments movie that's swirling around and it's almost a little beautiful. Another swirling death, like at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. I'm totally going to spoil Raiders of the Lost Ark, so everyone brace yourselves for that. Unless I already spoiled the Bible as well. I'm going to spoil Exodus. Yeah, firstborn, they all die. But the way it's done is in a very similar way, right? With the music and the nuclear fallout and dust swirling around and tie that together with my own experience of what I know ionizing radiation can do. And I thought it was super effective. I thought that was one of the most affecting horror pieces of the whole show. I mean, there were other things that had their own dramatic thrust, but that bridge of death scene I thought was really nicely done. 
watching it as a horror movie, not watching it as a based on a true story type of movie. Exactly. I agree. It was stunning in all of its horror. And also, none of these articles that we've looked at, I don't recall any of them saying that it wasn't a great show in terms of its entertainment value. It was interesting to watch something that I felt had great entertainment value, but was very slow moving. It reminded me a bit of, you know, watching the first season of The Crown, for example. You knew you were watching something beautiful, but sometimes it was hard to keep yourself awake. This was a little bit different, probably because of that horror aspect to it. And it made me wonder what's going on right now in the world that I'm looking at like a person on that bridge and thinking everything's totally fine when in fact I'm probably going to die a slow death one day from something that I'm breathing in or putting on my skin. Podcasting is fatal. So continuing, I think, Erica, that maybe the 96% rating on Rotten Tomatoes is driving the lack of discussion about the quality of this show. When something is really mixed, people spend a lot of time debating its quality. You know, these Star Wars movies lately that, that have been getting ratings in the 50% on Rotten Tomatoes. And, and a lot of that is high praise and high detraction. You can really burn a lot of breath on debating their quality. Everyone seems to really think this is good entertainment. So we're on to these secondary topics, I guess. As you were mentioning that, it reminded me of this other article from the spinoff by uh, Sam Brooks. The misery porn of Game of Thrones isn't profound. It's just miserable. In part, this article talks about how critics, and not just professional critics, but humans alike, like to see something that's dramatic and we automatically like to be like, wow, that's great. It's so profound. What a great piece of art. Overall, I didn't necessarily agree with this article and why they, I mean, it's fine. You can like Game of Thrones or not like Game of Thrones, but I do find a lot of humor and lightness to be found in Game of Thrones. Not a ton, but definitely there's some to be had and there are characters who specifically fulfill that. But there is something to be said for the fact that drama is taken more seriously than comedy. We've seen this through the years. It's gotten a little bit better with the Academy Awards. But in general, you know, for a very long time, it's been if you have a biopic or a grand sweeping three hour drama that takes you on a cinematic journey, then it's going to be taken a lot more seriously than a comedy will. Maybe there is a tendency for those of us to watch something like Chernobyl and be like, wow, that was some of the best TV I've ever seen. Maybe it does require us to look a little deeper at it and not just accept that it's great. Yeah, I do think we have a prejudice to think that something that is tragic is artistically great. And in this case, I would want to kind of divide things up. Like, I think as a thriller, as a horror movie, as a decent TV, it's almost a whodunit, this how do we solve the science problem? Like, that was what I found actually the most compelling about it, was how they were solving this, asking all these people to essentially sacrifice their lives to go and do some necessary, because of the way they had set up that, if you get near this thing at all, you will die. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but like your life is getting shortened for every minute that you're near it. So sort of looking at the heroism involved and the drama involved and those people making that sacrifice and how much are you lying to the people about the risks involved. Like I did like all that stuff, but I also found it incredibly manipulative in a way that I don't think an honest to goodness Oscar winning drama is or should be. But I find it less manipulative because it's based on a true story. I mean, I remember hearing about these conscripts who had 90 seconds to get rid of nuclear material 
And that was their only shot at it their whole life because it was already going to shorten their lives and they had to do it. And if a screenwriter came up with that, it would kind of feel like glurge to me. But I feel in Chernobyl, we are kind of bearing testament to people who actually did this. Now, I don't know if it was done exactly the way they showed, but I do know that that happened. You hear all the time, right? When something happens that's really heartwarming or interesting or unlikely, they'd say, well, you can never write a script about it because no one would buy it in Hollywood. But then it happens in real life and it becomes a story, so you're able to do it. And I feel like it it's fundamentally different when it is based on a true story and you have to have a lighter touch and be smarter and consider what your audience is willing to accept or swallow when it's pure fiction. But then we get into all this trouble of, well, when we start changing the actual events and adapting them, how does that impact our ability to accept them as a member of the audience? Right. I like that scene a lot with the guys on the roof and the fact that one of them goes out on the roof and basically trips all over himself and really doesn't accomplish very much. The more realistic it is, the more that it strikes me as just a tragedy. And you could ask, you know, kind of why I didn't want to see this in the first place before I started hearing so much about it, before Erica recommended it. It was because I thought it was just going to be more documentary, like more of a tragedy. And like, this is just going to be a bummer. There was certainly was that aspect to it, but there also was the part that made it more exciting, which was some of the more manipulative parts. So the bridge of death thing that you were saying works as a horror movie. It's weird that something that is based on a true story should be a horror movie. That what's essential to horror movies being horror movies is the fact that it's not real. Like it really strikes me as more of a tragedy and it makes you angry. It's a needless tragedy. If these people had been told about the dangers of radiation, they wouldn't have been all sitting out there. They wouldn't have been condemning themselves to death. I think you're right. I think that also that reminds me that some of the speeches that were given in there. Oh, the monologues like that they had one of them at the end, the scene with, oh, what are the characters' names? See, we're doing it. That scene where King George is talking to, no, don't do that. I know the scene where King George is talking to the dad of the guy who beats his wife in Big Little Lies. <laughs> I was thinking Thor, scientist friend. <laughs> the scene where Sherbina and Legasov are speaking to each other near the end, and you see these two people who kind of started out as foes and coming together and how they see the state and the whole idea of truth. Ah, oh, it was just beautiful. And those kinds of things, you know, are just completely dramatized because nobody speaks in dialogue that beautiful. But if they didn't, I wouldn't be that interested to watch the show. So yeah, there's something really great about fiction in, in that. And even if it is a bit of a lie, it got me to pay attention. And I know as a fairly informed watcher of movies and TV and listener of stories in general, that most of these things are going to be dramatized for the benefit of you know getting more listeners or also just to tell a more compelling story, a story that maybe more people will be interested to look up things about later and learn more on their own. Just like an intro into Chernobyl rather than a whole true account of the events. Yeah, of course, some of the objections to what they got wrong have been, oh, it's Russian stereotypes, this guy's drinking vodka, it's this terrible corruption, that the people that were in charge of the disaster were not this just horrible to each other as is depicted there. But one of the articles I want to call your attention to that's is from The New Yorker, Masha Gessen, what HBO's Chernobyl got right and what it got terribly wrong. This person's take is that it actually was overstating the rebelliousness of Legasov and some of the other characters and Komyuk, the Emily Watson character, who is imaginary anyway, 
these scientists were very much bucking the system in favor of truth. Like they didn't really understand. They were disdainful of the party system. This author says that, no, actually, if you were a scientist who had risen to a position of power there, you knew how the system worked. And there wouldn't be all these moment-to-moment sniping about bucking against the system. Like that's what American viewers would expect to be there. But as a matter of fact, everybody was very much conditioned to just obey. There were decades past the time where people would be taken out, you know, it was like more than 1930s where people would be taken out and shot. And so you'd be really fearful of getting shot from moment to moment in dealing with the party apparatus. No, that stuff was so well entrenched that people would just obey. (laughs) And that would have been much less interesting for us to watch. Yeah, I think that we, in, in our current American lens, we wouldn't understand what they were trying to do if we didn't see some sort of threat that was causing them to question things in a very particular way. I really like that article, Mark, and it points out the line of dialogue that Legasov asks his rhetorical, forgive me, maybe I've just spent too much time in my lab, or maybe I'm just stupid. Is this really the way it all works? An uninformed, arbitrary decision that will cost who knows how many lives that is made by some apparatchik, some career party man? Yeah, it just rings so hollow as just a way of framing it for the American viewer. It's just this clunky exposition for someone who would have no reason to ever have to say something like that. It's like I would get my pay stub and look at it and say, is this how it is? The government is taking a third of my wages and taxes? (laughs) I do say that. What are you talking about? I mean, I think it, but who am I saying it to? But it's just baked into our lives so much that, you know, we just... We live with it. It's part of a thing. I don't mean to criticize because it's exposition is hard and getting things across is hard. And I know we all, okay, I shouldn't say we all. Whenever I start a new program and, you know, that pilot is trying to do so much. And whenever two people see each other and someone says, Oh, come over here, brother. I want to talk to you. I'm like, who calls their brother, brother? It's like, I know. Okay. It's the pilot you're establishing. Their relationship, but I say, wife, would you come here? I want to talk to you. Like, what? Since we've been married all these years. Oh, thanks. I also like, though, how it makes you feel really smart sometimes. Did anybody else feel that when at the end, when Legasov was explaining how the reactor worked and he did it in such a beautiful way with his visual aids? And at the end, you're like, yeah, I totally get it. At the most basic level. I wonder if it's true. I wonder if what he said there is actually true. I'm sure we have people who might listen who know. I'm sure that many scientists would look at that and say, oh God, well, kind of, but it's not really real. It's just like anytime I watch a movie with people who don't really play musical instruments, playing musical instruments or talking about music in a particular way. Uh, I think it was, which one was the, the Spider-Man with Dr. Octopus? Spider-Man 2? Yeah. Dr. Octopus says... Did Beethoven sleep the night before he wrote the fifth? Well, probably slept a lot because it's going to take you more than a night to write the fifth symphony. But it made me, for that brief moment, feel like I kind of understood something about the science behind it. Now I feel like I'm an expert on nuclear reactors and Beethoven. You know it all. Now you know just enough to be very dangerous. Well, I just applied for a job at the local power plant, but now I'm also going to apply for a job at the local symphony. At the local symphony. Whatever that means. So I'm still wondering here if we've established that, yes, it is a dramatization, and any attempt to kind of dramatize up real tragedy seems in some way kind of cheap. I mean, you can see why they're doing it. 
You can even see, yes, this is a message that we want to get across. We want to get people interested in, in why this happened. We want people to apply the lessons here to their own society. But you're still using people's deaths to entertain people and make a lot of money. Any problem with that? Is there a distinction between the horror genre, say, and tragedy is kind of where I'm, that I would think tragedy, yes, you're dramatizing, but like it's entirely, well, I was going to say to realistically depict what it's like for certain people to go through certain things and make you feel empathy. And that's sort of the point. But there are certainly a lot of other accounts of tragedy that you could give that are much less savory than that. Hmm. Can you think of another example off the top of your head of something that is an American story that we, either a TV show or a film that we revere in the same way that we look at Chernobyl that has divided us and how it's told? I mean, when I was thinking of this sort of misery porn that's supposed to present tragedy, I was thinking of these very realistic depictions of kids getting kidnapped or just even a family member, especially a kid dying. So like the Broad Church series out of Britain, The Killing was an American one based on Finnish, some kind of Scandinavian story where they kind of, part of it was like a police procedural, but then like a good half of it was just like the actual people involved, the family members of the victim reacting to the death of this child for a whole freaking season. And it's sort of agonizing and intended to be very realistic in a way that like a normal police procedural when, you know, it's trying to just get you to identify with the police people and what this cool mystery that they're solving and not face the tragedy of the actual murder involved. Well, I haven't seen all of that to speak to it. To get to Erica's question and sticking closer to based on a true story, the thing that came to mind for me was Schindler's List, which is American made, or I think it was made have been an international production, though not based on an American story, but it's very much a Steven Spielberg film. There is a lot in there that's very difficult to watch. It's the suffering is more intentional, right? This is not an accident. It's a, this is wartime policy being done and it's on a different scale, right? We're just seeing it kind of up close and personal in Oscar Schindler's world. I thought it was very manipulative and not easy to watch. It's a movie I didn't ever have a desire to watch more than once. I remember thinking that some of the acting wasn't very good and maybe that made it a little easier to not have to buy into all the way. I remember talking with my sister about it afterwards and how Liam Neeson, am I saying his name right? Liam Neeson's big Oscar bait speech at the end where he's wondering whether selling his pin could have saved one more life was just so cringeworthy. It it almost makes it easier when it's a little less good in some ways because you can back away from it and say, well, this is kind of clunky. I don't feel that maybe Chernobyl had some of those problems, which, and again, I'm going back to that 96% on Rotten Tomatoes where the fact that it was such a high quality production and it didn't really make a lot of mistakes makes it a little harder to find flaw with it. I think it knew its audience too. I think Chernobyl had a pretty specific audience in mind for that. Whereas something like Schindler's List, I watched at a younger age and I probably would have seen those speeches and not realized it was bad acting and just would have been very moved by it. So the intention of it trying to teach me and help me develop sympathy for the situation would have actually really worked very well. But in this case, when we're talking about who the audience is, I think it's important to think maybe why they decided to create this piece right now. I mean, it, there was an anniversary, right? It was that the half-life that was reached and that's why they wanted to talk about Chernobyl at this point. 
So part of it could be that they're trying to get us to sympathize with what happened and remind us that things like this have happened and they might still be happening and don't let it happen again. On the other hand, maybe it's a more current idea because at the end, he he's talking about lies and what's the value of a lie and the value of truth. And this is something that's really big and all over the world now and politically speaking in particular. So I guess it doesn't go back to what you were talking about, about the kids. Well, I guess in a way it does because it's giving us a lens that's not our own, right? These Americans and Brits and we just vacationed in Northern Ireland and we were all talking about Chernobyl. And so we're all these people who knew about it, but weren't directly associated with it. So it's easier, I think, to learn from a story that didn't have to do with your own tragedy and to look at somebody else's and hopefully learn a lesson from it. Generally, we're not, I don't think, that great at learning from our own tragedies because we're too close to them. I think that's true. I think we've seen that in other instances. I remember when I was overseas in college, there was this real big movement towards feeding the poor Native Americans in America. That was the way that in the U.S. they were talking about feeding the poor in Africa. And it really struck me as this oddly discordant thing, but I guess it makes perfect sense that we wouldn't necessarily have that instinct on our own front door in quite the same way. And so maybe it's that similar idea, Mark, for when we watch things like the killing and we don't want to see the gruesome parts of the killing, but we want to figure out the mystery surrounding it. It's a more palatable way to handle tragedy. It's not focusing on the death itself, but the difficulties and circumstances surrounding that death. And of course, they're written for us to want to solve the mystery and to just be an exciting, intriguing form of theater anyway. And Chernobyl learned from that show, perhaps, by only having five episodes. Because if you have to have, whatever, 24 and spread a disaster, a drama, a people coping with loss and a mystery over lots and lots of episodes, it's bad. Come up with something exciting to happen at the end of every single episode. No. Mark, I kind of feel like your question gets at whether entertainment based on these negative emotions is itself a legitimate or valid thing. A lot like that article that you've already mentioned, Erica, about negative, I guess it was the one on Game of Thrones, but what are we doing here, right? Is is this the job of movies and TV or even broader forms of entertainment to stir up these negative emotions in us? What is an artist's job at all? I mean, I come at this much more as a consumer than as a producer. As a consumer, I want these emotions stirred in me. I, I don't want to experience them firsthand, but I think experiencing them secondhand can be pretty valuable in understanding what other people are going through, even if they're fictional people. And people develop real emotional connections to fictional people all the time. I mean, it's how we engage in a lot of our media. And if we're connecting to the Emily Watson character, even if there was no Emily Watson character, I think that's totally fine. I mean, if I have to actually show my cards, I'm totally comfortable with whatever changes they elected to make for the purpose of telling their story. That's assuming they're not trying to pawn this off as, this is what happened. And I don't get a sense that they are. They're pretty clear about that in the closing title cards. Trying to think of what makes for a terrible drama, and I've been browsing through, as we speak, the worst drama films of all time at the Globe Gazette. The number one worst one is Glitter. Mariah Carey's. You need to find the worst drama by an Oscar-winning director. Right, going for the worst drama is 
That's not anything, Mark. No, no, because it has like the room in this list. But like number four is Showgirls, which I did see. And I, in fact, I was kind of confusing with glitter. So what seems to, you know, when I would watch Siskel and Ebert back in the day and the things that they would most fawn over would be, I want to see slice of life. That's what makes for really good art is to see, as you're saying, to be connected with an honest viewpoint that somebody has. Of course, you don't want to do it maybe in the most realistic way because that would be, yes, (laughs) so boring and very hard to listen to. And hard to follow because you're not actually in the person's head. You need to have some skill of how to get those to see what a person's point of view is. It has to be expelled in some way. It has to be dramatically depicted in some way. And that's maybe easier to do in a book where you could just, you know, hear what the character's thoughts are. A drama could be bad because it's just poorly executed because they don't understand how to use the tools to present this stuff in a way that is actually palatable. But it seems the other way that a drama could be bad is just to be false, that you're not actually depicting a real point of view, that it really is the changes you've made for dramatic effect have ended up ultimately falsifying the thing that you're trying to depict. Yeah, and I guess we're not the best judges of how much is falsified here. We've done some research to show some of the issues that people who are sympathetic with the Russian government, and with Brian here, I, I don't quite know what all is true and false, but I feel like there's enough truth in it that I learned something valuable and it's something that I'm more interested in. And I'm more interested to know some of the truths behind that. So to me, a good piece of art, hopefully, gets people talking. It gets people talking about things that are accurate, things that are inaccurate, things that they wish were better. And it doesn't hit all the marks because you really can't hit all the marks. There's just no way. And if you were, and you were trying to do that, then you'd probably be creating some bad art because you're trying to satisfy everybody. It's fundamentally lying. You know, my my example for that is like the God is not dead. Like a a philosophy professor gets his students to, I want you to, there's no room for God in this classroom. And I want everybody to write on the page that, you know, God doesn't exist. And if you don't, you're going to get an F. And like, and that is the basis for the movie to go forward. And that one brave student's rebellion against that. And like, whatever people's actual experience of feeling that their Christian beliefs are not being respected in college settings, that exact thing does not happen, let alone by people that are this loathsome and just there's so much wrong with that movie over and above the filmmakers not being skilled, that it's just ideologically broken. The thing beyond that, what if it is accurately conveying and skillfully conveying somebody's experience, but you just find these people repulsive? You don't want to know more about them. You don't want to spend an afternoon with them. Do you feel like that's just, as a viewer, you're being squeamish, that you don't want to you know, see what the drug dealer's life is like? Or is that a legitimate way for a drama to be bad? I don't like watching that kind of stuff. If I'm not compelled to sympathize with any of the characters, then I don't usually like watching it. For example, I'm not trying to pick on this, but It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, I think is really, really funny. Brian is dancing to this. (laughs) It's really great. And sometimes I love it, but sometimes I find it difficult because it's hard to like anybody. And I know that's part of the point. You beat me to it on that one. And I think it works because it's comedy. We like to see bad things happen to the gang. In short amounts, it's really helpful. It's a half hour long sitcom. And when they do dumb things and they get their comeuppance, yeah, they're all really unlikable. And yeah, that feels really good. You know, we're comfortable and bad things happen to them in a mostly comedic sort of way. It's much harder to take in drama than it is in comedy, I think. 
Yeah. And then you have something like Big Little Lies, which a lot of people talk about in a similar vein. It's like these terrible things are happening to these people who aren't all that great. I actually really like Big Little Lies for a number of reasons. But one is that I don't feel like they're all terrible people. I mean, they all do terrible things, but then you find out the motivations behind each one and they all become rather likable in their own way. That's what I like. So I guess you're right. It wouldn't necessarily appeal to me if everybody were terrible and it were telling a tragic story. I'd be like, okay, I'm all set. It really, if something is skillfully done and yet you still don't like it because you don't like the characters and don't want to spend time with them, I feel like that is more on the viewer. That it's just you're not the viewer that should be watching The Wire or whatever the thing is. I think one of the challenges, Mark, is these days it's really a thing to have flawed characters, right? That's all of our protagonists are flawed to some degree, but it's hard to make someone flawed but still likable in their own way. And it just takes skill. Fortunately, a lot of skilled people are giving us entertainment and they're still managing to do it. So that's good. Did you all see Vice? I'm about halfway through it. Yeah, I'm, I'm in the process of it. I had a hard time with that one. I, I noticed that it was well made and it was funny at times and it was somewhat entertaining, but also it was a lot of people like I didn't really like and you're not really supposed to. And I wondered why they wanted to tell the story. What was the point? Because it didn't leave us feeling any better. And not that art has to leave us feeling any better, but it's kind of a tragic story and characters that I don't really care about. So it was lost on me a bit, I admit rooting for the closing credits. Well, maybe I won't finish Vice. I don't know. Uh, you know, finish it. Maybe you'll be the intended audience. I just wasn't. I feel like they made that movie to get Christian Bale an Oscar, and it got absolutely no traction. And the reviews I read of it were a little bit of, yeah, this is kind of too soon, and kind of heard some smug chuckling in the room as people were watching it, but what are we doing here? Kind of like that smug chuckling. I feel like that's a that's a good title for something. It's like tub thumping. So to try to bring it back to Chernobyl, yes, it's very possible that if we had not gotten the sweetening, and also just who do you choose to focus on, right? You didn't have to choose the firefighter's wife to be like a significant character here, but that was like a thing that is like a story that you will actually care about. And maybe if it had just focused on the scientists, well, obviously this just chosen because the people who made it thought that the scientists were heroic in some way. But it's very possible, you know, if this what this New Yorker article was correct, that their actual behavior, even in doing these heroic things, we would have been much less sympathetic if it had really been just portrayed straightforwardly what they actually did, what they actually said, how they were all much more complicit with the system, perhaps, than it was depicted. Oh, absolutely. And they did a good job of not just making them sympathetic, but the miners. That was some of the funniest stuff. Like, and it was so tragic, but also f- like the head miner was so funny. I feel like we've all met somebody like that in our lives, some sort of construction worker or, or, you know, some hardened man who tells it like it is. And so even though that was a really hard part of the story to watch, they did it in such a way that made it him relatable to us. One of the things I really liked, and I actually put in my notes in bold and in red, one was from this Bustle article by Louisa Ballhaus. And also, we have an article from CNBC, which is why we love to binge on stressful shows like Chernobyl and Black Mirror. That's by Daniel Buxpen. The Bustle one is called What Watching Misery Porn Shows Like The Handmaid's Tale Does to Your Mental Health. 
Right. And so one of the comments that they made was, it's easier to say, hey, are you watching The Handmaid's Tale or Chernobyl in this instance, as opposed to what do you think about the Supreme Court's decision or what do you think about our current political climate, right? So there's something with that that I think is absolutely true. And then a very similar idea in the other article, which Patrick Davy Tully, who is a, ther- a family therapist in LA, said, we often struggle with sharing our feelings. So these shows fulfill that need to be heard by showing examples of how we feel, even if these examples are abstract or not related to our life. The energy is still relatable. Both of those examples are wonderful reasons why I relate to those things, why many people relate to those things. We don't have to name the problem in our own lives or you know, in others' lives. We can talk about something that's a bit disconnected, that's actually pretty healthy, and that is not as politically charged when we talk about a story like Chernobyl. Yeah, I think that's really good, Erica. I agree with all of what you said there. The one thing I would say that I haven't yet, and I just think I want to temper a little bit of what I said earlier, which has to do with, I'm really okay with changing facts of what's purported to be based on a true story. If it makes things work and if it still feels authentic. But I do think there's something else that happens, which is when we know something and when we see something, the thing that we see maybe sticks in our brain a little bit more, even if what we know is contrary to that. So the fact that they say there was no Emily Watson character, or the fact that after you've seen the right stuff you read in the paper that, oh yeah, Chuck Yeager never took an airplane up into the sky like that. Well, okay, and I know that now, but I've seen this scene and I've seen this character and that is what still knocks around in my head. And I think that's borne out in other things. You always hear about these people who are, they admit to have done something in court, but then the video gets out and then that's what really changes stuff. Whether it's, uh, you know, it comes up with athletes, not only athletes, it's coming up with the owner of the New England Patriots that, okay, he's admitted to something, but when we see the video, that's really going, that's what would make him lose his job or whatever it is. So seeing something has an impact on us and having knowledge that it's not something or something different, that knowledge isn't always that helpful. The images, the emotional experience of watching that image really is what drives us forward. I would almost prefer that something that's deviating from a true story just be more over the top about it. I don't know if you guys have ever seen. It's kind of a foreign, well, it's literally foreign, but I, I think the whole idea is foreign. There's a series of movie called Ip Man, I-P Man, that are sort of biographical about the guy whose name was Yip Man, that's his actual name, or Yip Man, who taught Bruce Lee. And it is presented as the way that legends would grow about them, and they would become these mythical figures and have all these exaggerated stories about them. Like, well, it seems like you can't do that anymore because we have actual photographs and a press and things that actually keep track of facts more. But this series of movies is just unapologetically exaggerating this guy's conflicts and dramatizing his conflicts to make him into one of these legendary figures. So that it's like, we might want to say, inspired by the story of, or loosely based on, it goes beyond dramatization with the effect purpose of lionizing this guy and just giving you a cool martial arts movies to watch that, you know, somebody's actual life fitting in a little bit with the martial arts movie format and tropes. So this is Delio 
telling stories around the campfire in 300, right? The stories he tells are probably actually, they're better than reality, or they make us feel what we're supposed to feel about someone in a way that if you just gave us reality, we wouldn't feel it in quite the right way. Put it that way. Absolutely. That's why I'm a terrible storyteller. I forget that whole whole tenet, uh, brevity is the, the soul of wit, you know? I will get far too into details and try to quote people accurately. And because of that, I am, uh, I am a pretty bad storyteller. <laughs> I, I need think, a script in front of me. I think the important thing is that every sentence kind of sounds the same and that you tell a story like this and then you give another detail and it's <laughs> just so you... Uh, you always land up, so I wonder what's coming next. <laughs> exactly. That's Let me a- tell you a story about that time Erica said what a bad storyteller she was. <laughs> I think it was when, an average Tuesday. <laughs> I think when Homer would tell his stories, he would use that tone. All right. Well, I'm sure we'll return uh, at some later point to talk more about various things that we watch that make us sad on purpose <laughs> and uh, what kinds of weird fantasies we must have to uh, want to include in our fantasies torture and other forms of extreme suffering when it seems like entertainment should be a retreat from suffering, but there you go. I think we've uh, said all we can say about Chernobyl, at least. Chernobyl. Chernobyl. Cheran the Noble. All right. Bye. Bye. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network. Please visit partiallyexaminedlife.com. And it's also presented by openculture.com. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode, and you get to hear the episodes in advance of everyone else at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit kia.com to learn more. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.